0: Um, several here that was not here last time we met and then mark though has been mark and nancy we've been through uh, this there'll be a few additions but we've been through it and all through it before Um, jason uh, we started some weeks back i don't remember exactly how many but i think this would make about our fifth study on this studying the second coming of christ and uh, we covered the information in the Gospels and then in the letters, proceeding through the New Testament. And up to this point, and we're, we're into Revelation now, uh, what we had noticed that uh, when we deal with these passages that talk about the second coming of Christ and a judgment situation, that each time when we look at these passages in their context, that they are talking about the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation, and that when we look at this second coming uh, from a standpoint of the time frame that's given us. Now the time frame isn't always given, but when we look at it from the standpoint of the time frame when it is given, we always get statements uh, that let us know that they're expecting the second coming in their lifetime, in that generation. And, uh, and whether this is in Matthew 16, 27, 28 coming in His glory with His angels Uh, judgment, and then there are some of you standing here that will not taste death until they see this happen. Or Matthew 10, 23, you will not uh, finish going through the cities of Israel until the Son of Man comes. Or in Matthew 23 and 24, when all these things will happen in this generation. And the same thing in Luke 21 and and Mark uh, 13. And then as we proceed through the letters... We find first of all in the book of Acts that the number one persecuting force against the church is the Jews. In fact, really in the early years of Christianity up until 64 in fact, up until about 64 with the persecution under Nero, Rome was actually a protector of the church. Uh, It was Rome that was protecting Paul from the Jews uh, when they had, had him in jail. And Paul was there at his request. He didn't want to turn him loose. He was making his appeal all the way to Caesar. And as we go through the book of Acts, we find Paul, before he's converted, doing all he can to stamp out Christianity. And then after he's converted, we uh, find this constant persecution of Christians by Jews who did not believe Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, we find Jews taking a vow as to their own death to take the life of Paul. Uh, we find that when he would go into cities like Thessalonica, the Jews would, would run him out and, and would do everything they could to destroy his and discredit his testimony. And this is true at Berea or any place he went. That They always were there trying to discredit that information to the Gentiles. And so the persecuting force has been the Jews who rejected Christ. And so consequently, in that first generation of Christianity, we have two distinct bodies of people that are claiming to be the people of god with the truth and that's the christians and the jews and the jews are stating that uh, these christians have been misled that jesus was an imposter he was not the messiah and the christians are saying that the jews crucified their own messiah and that he was going to come in judgment on them just as he promised and demanding and calling for their recognition of him and their their repentance and so there's this friction from rome's standpoint they were all jews and christianity was a little sect from within judaism uh, rome didn't fully understand what was going on this dead man that the christians uh, claimed to be alive again but uh, from rome's standpoint it was still a, a jewish problem primarily they looked at christianity as a sect within judaism but the persecuting force is jews not rome all right then as we proceed through the letters We find that in these letters that emphasize the second coming of Christ, that there are several things that we can note. Number one, they are written to people who are being severely persecuted and under trial and tribulation at that point in time. Uh, Whether it's James, who is writing to people that are in trials and tribulation, and then he's telling them in in the latter part in James 5 and in, to be patient uh, that the end is near, the end of all things is near. And then in 1 Peter, uh, these people are being persecuted. And he says in 1 Peter 4 and verse uh, uh, 7 that the end of all things is at hand, it's near. And then he says in verse 17, it's now time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And so these Jews that had become Christian are being severely persecuted by Jews who rejected the Messiah. And he's telling them that it's that the coming of Christ is imminent, it's near, and judgment will begin at the house of God. Uh, in 2 Peter, he alludes back and reminds them of the first letter and tells them that he's talking about the same event. And he deals with their trials and tribulations and this imminent return that is coming. Uh, in Hebrews, uh, it's written to uh, Jews who have become Christians and they're being persecuted. And the persecution is so bad that many of them have gone back to Judaism. And uh, They've, they've abandoned the assembling of themselves together like in Hebrews 10, 25 when he says not forsaken of the assembly of yourselves together. Uh, the writer's not talking about missing a Wednesday night service or a Sunday night service or something like that. He's talking about, to people that have literally abandoned the uh, public uh, uh, getting together and assembly because of persecution. And then in that discourse, Uh, He reminds them that there there is a coming of the Lord that is imminent and judgment was imminent. In Matthew, or in Hebrews 10, verse 37, that it was an imminent thing that was about to take place. Uh, John writes that they're in the last hour. And so, by the time we get to Revelation, all of these letters are written to Christians who are being persecuted by their fellow, by Jews who did not become Christians, and in talking to them about the second coming, it was actually designed to give them hope. Judgment is coming on these persecutors of you. Now, we noted that an interesting thing, that unbelievers and, and people that we refer to also as liberal theologians who do not have the same kind of respect for the uh, inspiration of the Bible as, as uh, most of us or all of us do, They have always recognized that Jesus said he was coming back uh, in that generation and that all the writings was looking for a second coming that was going to be imminent and and they were looking for it right then And, and is one of the marks against the inspiration of the New Testament. They have used the fact that both Jesus and the apostles taught that he is coming was going to be in that generation. It was an imminent type thing. They were all expecting it. And Christians are being dishonest and not recognizing that he didn't come. And that we take those same passages and have preached them for 2,000 years as if he was imminently coming. When in reality it was unfulfilled prophecy. It it didn't happen. Uh, Some uh, scholars who started out conservative scholars with fundamentalist uh, groups have actually become liberals and taken a different look at the New Testament and, uh, and a different uh, idea of belief towards it uh, because of this, this factor, that the fact that they had believed uh, that it was an imminent thing, they had preached the second coming, and then they it, they thought about it, uh, they read the works and the observations of unbelievers, and they said, well, that's true. He did say in in that generation, and you wouldn't finish going through the cities, and, and while some of you are still alive, and it was going to come speedily and soon, and the end of all things is near, uh, what meaning could that possibly have had to those people if you're talking about something that is thousands of years in the future? What hope could it possibly have let them have? So we have come up to this point now, to Revelation, and we've noted that that in context, and it's interesting here, that uh, scholarship uh, would be just about unanimous now in placing all of these books, uh, all the Gospels, and all these various letters of Paul before seventy a d in fact uh Paul uh, is put to his death somewhere around sixty four and everybody's in agreement there, so all his letters were written before that time. Peter goes to his death right about the same time that Paul does. in fact, all available evidence uh, suggests that both Peter and Paul uh, went to their death uh, during the time that of uh, the persecution of Nero, and so these materials were finished, and and at this point in time the biggest thing they were looking forward to was the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, and the downfall of that persecuting force against the church. Now, it's interesting when we come to Revelation that scholars all through the centuries have acknowledged that the internal evidence was pre-destruction of Jerusalem, and the Dating when you, in the Bibles that put, put it at 96, 97, 98 AD uh, have been done so as a result of really one statement that is a third-hand statement in uh, secular sources among the church fathers. To show you the problems that there has been with Revelation in dragging it down through the centuries, it was interesting to me looking at some of even the old uh, commentaries here. This is Adam Clark, uh, an older commentary and yet considered an absolute scholar uh, in his day. Uh, Clark, at first, wasn't even going to touch uh, <coughs> Revelation, and he find, here's a statement he makes. After commenting on the rest of the New Testament, he said, I had resolved for a considerable time not to meddle with this book, because I foresaw that I could do nothing satisfactory to it. He said, I changed my resolution and have added short notes. And if you've read from Clark, you know that that's something for him to write short about anything. But what it shows is that if you're going to drag revelations down through the centuries, that here is an absolutely outstanding scholar, fluent in the Greek and the Hebrew and, and well-studied and all, and he just about didn't even want to write a commentary on it. Uh, John Calvin said he saw no value to the book of Revelation and would say very little about it. Uh, he, it was as if he was embarrassed by it. Martin Luther plainly admitted that uh, Revelation was as much an embarrassment to him as Luther James was. But the point I'm getting across here is that, that for all of these big bold statements by individuals that have taken Revelation down through the years or who stand today and they apply Revelation to all the various events going on, some extremely outstanding scholars have come out very plainly and said they felt very insecure and incompetent in handling this particular book. And of course that is from the standpoint of trying to bring it down through the years. But now here's an interesting thing also, that Adam Clark, keep in mind at the time he writes this, uh, the biblical scholarship and all at that time, uh, so far as the churches went, uh, put it at 96 and then interpreted it from that point on. And Protestant theology was colored by the fact that they had come out of Roman Catholicism and everything bad in the Bible they wanted to interpret as applying to the Pope in Rome and that includes the beast in Revelation or anything, but they were very colored in their thinking after coming out of Catholicism, it was the worst thing in their experience. Okay, uh, this statement by, uh, he quotes a fellow by the name of Whetstone. he said, he supposes the book of the apocalypse to have been written a considerable time before the destruction of Jerusalem. The events described from the fourth chapter to the end he supposes refer to the Jewish war and to the civil commotions which took place in Italy these contentions and destructive wars occupied the space of three years and a half, during which Professor Wetson thinks the principal events took place and recorded on this book. And he goes ahead and points out that he personally is led to agree. In other words, he, he, said that what, he points out that this sounds logical to him and that the contents of Revelation internally actually fit that. And then he says... Weston is supported by very great men among the ancients and the moderns that the book of Revelation was written before the Jewish War and the Civil War in Italy. Again he comes up and makes that statement I just read earlier and then he gets into his commentary on Revelation and when he gets over here in the 11th chapter he refuses to in other words on the one hand he doesn't put it before in a concrete way but he refuses to take 96 AD also Because the internal evidence, even though the the churches of that day were interpreted that way, he saw the internal evidence so contrary to what was happening that he wouldn't accept it. And to him, the internal evidence uh, was before the destruction of Jerusalem. In chapter 11, his comment was, um, we'll get into chapter 11 a little bit, this must refer to the temple of Jerusalem. And this is another evidence that it was yet standing. The measuring of the temple probably refers to its approaching destruction and the termination of the whole Levitical service. And this we find to be done by the Gentiles who were treaded down 42 months. In other words, even a century ago, when we didn't have the archeological discoveries that we have now, a lot of the benefits of higher criticism and and some of the other modern scholarship, uh, Clark was saying that the internal evidence definitely fit uh, the pre-destruction of Jerusalem and that he recognized that there were outstanding scholars before him and at that time who believed it but and his own situation was despite this background that had come out of uh, the Catholic Church and this Protestant background that wanted to use every negative thing against the the Catholic Church uh, he had some problems there and he would not come out in a dogmatic way and place this in 96 and just simply use it in that way all right this uh, book here by John Drain, uh, introducing the New Testament. Uh, This man would be considered a very liberal scholar, and he deals with the history of the New Testament. When he gets over here to uh, uh, Revelation, he makes some of these comments. John assured his Christian readers that their present sufferings was only temporary. Their great enemy Babylon, a term which John, like Peter, used to refer to Rome, would ultimately come under the judgment of God. The significance of Revelation can be exhausted just by seeing what it meant for those Christians to whom it was addressed. Alright, now notice what he says about what we now hear taught most concerning Revelation. In the last 100 years or so, a large body of popular opinion has come to look at Revelation in a different way. The so-called futurists argue that its real meaning is connected with events that are still in the future even now, and its full significance will become plain only to that generation which finds itself living in the last days. Some have even suggested that the seven letters with which the book opens are not real letters at all, but part of a detailed, clairvalent insight given to John. They see them as detailed descriptions of seven successive ages of church history, reaching from the first century to the end of time. Many of these so-called dispensationalists also believe that we today have reached the stage of the seventh and final letter. So they claim our generation is living at the very end of world history. He said there's many difficulties with this view. There, of course, is the plain fact that several generations have believed themselves to be living in the last days. Some even putting a date on the end of the world, but they've all been wrong. And then he says, it's also true that it's hardly likely that God would have given the information only to a select band of modern readers of the book of Revelation. In other words, what he's saying is if, if these people are right, then absolutely nobody understood Revelation until the past hundred years and these modern, modern scholars. Another serious objection is that according to this view, the book of Revelation must have been totally meaningless and irrelevant to the people to whom it was written. If the letters to the churches of Asia were not real letters related to the concerns of the people, What would make Revelation quite different from every other book in the whole Bible? Or that would make it quite different than every other book in the Bible. There is no justification for regarding either Revelation or any other book in the Bible as a kind of blueprint for future course of world events. Okay, what he goes on to state is that he believes personally that Revelation was written by John to people at that day, that they were the ones being persecuted, that they were the ones involved in the events themselves, And then, of course, that the state, the beliefs being propagated today, that we're in the last times, or it refers to the last days and all, is really a view that has not been preached through the centuries. It's a view that has come about in the past 100 years and really had never been preached before that particular time. All right, now, this book here is by F.F. Bruce on New Testament history. And... uh, Bruce, in, uh, on page 410 and 4, 411, uh, talks about Nero's attack on the Roman Christians and had came as a shock, which they never forgot. Uh, he goes ahead then and applies uh, what's happening then with Nero and the persecution of the church, and then what happened at the destruction of Jerusalem, and he quotes passages in Revelation and applies. Uh, this material to having been written before uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. And he applies the contents as applying to Rome and Nero and then also to the Jewish people that were persecuting the church and that Jerusalem was going to go to its downfall by Rome. This one here, I've gone over that, uh, History of the Christian Church by Philip Schaff, Uh, In his edition that he edits this, he makes the statement that on two places he changed since his first edition, and one is the writing of the Apocalypse, that he says, I now, with most of the other scholars, and this was written in 1910, place the book of Revelation as having been written before 70 AD, and about about 68 AD, and applying primarily to the destruction of Jerusalem, the Jewish nation, and also to Nero and the the Roman Empire. This one is a commentary written by William Hurt. Uh, He's from Scotland. Uh, The Restoration Movement that we speak of in in Churches of Christ actually started in Scotland. And of course it came to this country, uh, to both Thomas and Alexander Campbell came from Scotland. Uh, This man is from that background and he preached in Scotland. And on his comment uh, on the book of Revelation, he's answering the question, uh, had the destruction of Jerusalem taken place when John wrote Revelation? No. And although our reference Bibles, the, the chronology is printed AD 96, yet scholars maintain that this arises from some copious mistakes, mistaking the name of the emperor who is said to have reigned at the time John wrote. According to Robert Young in his brief commentary on the book of Revelation, it was written at Patmos about AD 68. Whether John had been banished by Domitius Nero as stated in the title of the Syriac version. What he points out there is, The oldest complete version of the New Testament is the Syriac version written in Aramaic at 150 AD. And in the statement there it actually places Revelation as written in 68 AD and written by John uh, and uh, right after the thing by Nero. Uh, With this concurs the express statement of Irenaeus who says it happened in the reign of Uh, Domitius Nero and then he goes on and says uh, Severus stupidly mistaking I'm quoting him domatoph or domatation supposed Irenaeus referred to Domitian AD 95 and most succeeding writers have fallen into the same blunder fallen into the same blunder the internal testimony is wholly in favor of the earlier date, that John saw these visions in the reign of Nero that they were written by him during his banishment and that the emperor is is confirmed, and he goes on and names uh, several other individuals. But anyway, that I'm saying that here's a guy in the restoration movement in Scotland uh, in the past century, and who was convinced even at that time beyond any doubt, and applies all of it before the to the downfall of, of Jerusalem and also the Roman Empire that was persecuting Christians at that time, and then now. This I handed out to everybody last time. A copy of it, Uh, Jason. I'll give you a copy of it. This is from uh, uh, Time Magazine, uh, 19, an article in 1984 in the religious section, uh, dealing with these various beliefs on Revelation, and what they point out there is the majority of modern scholars put Revelation before 70 A.D. and apply it to the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation. In short that to say that the majority believe anything doesn't prove it but what i am saying with all of this is that we we have been brought up in a religious world where revelation has been dragged down through the centuries and used relative to the end of the world and the second coming of christ and since everybody we've heard use it in any way has used it that way there's been it's like well the evidence must be absolutely overwhelming that this is the case and yet I'm saying that when we look at the information, the vast majority of scholars actually put Revelation before 70 AD and applied to the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the Jewish nation, and in the time of in the setting beginning with the persecution of the Christians by Rome under Nero. And even before the latest archaeological evidence that has changed the dating of John. I say that because the Dead Sea Scrolls have had a big part in the changing of the dating of John. Uh, Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were many scholars that put John's writings uh, later, not because of of any concrete evidence they had, but because he used terms like light and darkness and logos and, and this apocalyptic terms in Revelation, that they said the only record they had of those kind of terms and writings was in the second century. And so they said he simply could not have written in this way at that time. That was their evidence. In their opinion, he could not have written this way. Well, then, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find that this apocalyptic literature that we have here actually was written before the time of Christ, uh, for several hundred years before Christ. And we find that uh, the Essenes, We're using all of these terms of light and darkness and logos and everything. And also through archaeological discoveries in the excavation of Jerusalem, going on right now, excavating parts of Jerusalem, we now recognize that parts of John that one time were questioned because we could not relate certain things he said to the city of Jerusalem. We now know that he was writing of Jerusalem in a pre-70 AD state and he wrote in a way that he could not have written except he had lived and written at that particular time. And so now in archaeology books, and this is just a couple of samples here, of later studies, that scholars as a result of the archaeological discoveries, and specifically the Dead Sea Scrolls and some other discoveries, are now backing up and putting the writings of John before 70 AD. Uh, Mark?
1: Okay, um, in a bunch of material I've read I've always seen that John's captivity was placed about eighty-five A.D. Um, I don't understand why that is. You know what you just said seems to correct what do you mean that.
0: When he was
1: captivity now. I, when he was banished to Patmos, any kind of dating that I've ever seen is always set around like eighty-five or so. And then all of his books after that, of course, they couldn't have been written before that. But any time I've, I've read about, you know, I can um, Haley's Bible Handbook. He talks about how John was, you know, 85
0: a- okay. B- A.D. The dating on that it was not a result of some concrete empirical information. Uh, it, the statement about 96 began with a third-hand statement that it itself was very questionable all the way through. And John was placed there only because of certain uh, language <coughs> patterns that he used. And also certain things, in other words, uh, they said certain things uh, that he was arguing against did not come to be a force until about in the 80s. For example, in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he's concerned with this Antichrist. And he's concerned with the beginning of what we now know as Gnosticism. And so they said that that didn't even start up until that period of time. And so based on that, but what happened, their argument was really from one of silence. They're saying that based on the record that we have now, you know, this is it. Well now, with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and with some of the other tablets now, that's all just simply that's been blown out. That uh, that we now know that there is absolutely no language pattern or piece of information in John that was not available before 70 AD. And that uh, there's and so the there would in Halley's you're taking information that goes back for some time also. You know, I'm saying he's getting his sources uh, from back before the Dead Sea Scrolls and some some other events that have happened. All right, then Another thing that has was a problem to the scholars through the years anyway, is the, the only statement that we have of John in his elderly years is by Jerome. And Jerome mentioned that uh, at uh, 96, and see John in 96 is about 96 years of age. He's right about the same age of, of Jesus. That in his older years, in, in the year 95-96 AD, that Jerome said that he was very infirm, that he could not walk, and that he had to be carried to church. And that uh, he made statements like, you know, children love one another, and he put emphasis on love and all, but that he was a very feeble individual that had no, had, did not have any more vigor and was not a strong person than it was actually carried to church. All right? And see, this for years was a problem now with uh, people who put Revelation in 96, and you just kind of push aside. John is 96 years of age. At 96. Uh, this... Uh, person who writes Revelation has been very aggressively preaching, and as a result of his aggressive preaching he's been banished to the Isle of Patmos. All he had to do to, to keep being banished is keep his mouth shut. So he's been banished because of aggressive preaching, and then when he writes this letter, the letter's full of fire. You know, it, it's telling these people, you hang in there, you know, hang tough, be thou faithful up to and including death, and it just moves in a real fast pace by somebody whose emotions are really involved in this. And he's writing to these people as people that, that he knows, and he's familiar with their sufferings, and, and and he's all involved in it and writing. In other words, he does not write with the, the energy level and the attitude and all that, that you expect of somebody that would be 96 years of age. Okay, he writes as somebody that is very aggressively preaching himself, has been banished for that preaching, and he's writing to people that he's had a part in their conversion and a part in the establishment of these churches, and he's very know he's very alert, knows everything that's going on there, and then he's hitting them individually and tell them how to conduct themselves, you know, in that situation.
1: Did well then after that, did he have any writings after the destruction of Jerusalem? Is there any record that John wrote down after like this was, you know, did he did he write anything to affirm what he had written in Revelation?
0: No, that we, we don't have any more record of John other than what you have right here, then Jerome. That, that's you it, the
1: comment.
0: Uh, keep in mind that writing was not to these people what you and I might think of. I don't believe there was any apostle that understood that he was writing part of what we now call the mm-hmm. New Testament. I really don't believe that myself. The Holy Spirit knew obviously, but the individual man, Paul wrote to Rome because he couldn't get there and he, and he was hindered from going there. If Paul could have got there we wouldn't have that letter. He wrote letters because he was in jail. And he even told them that I'd rather come to you. When John wrote his short letters, like 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he tells you that the reason it's so short, he says, I'd rather come to you than to write it in paper and ink, and I'm on my way. But he had some things he needed to say before he got there. But then I mean, he was saving the best till he got there. You know that, That's why they're very short. They're very very quick and, and written because he can't get there at that time. Uh, in Revelation, obviously these people are being severely persecuted and so if you've had a part and you're concerned about the establishment of the church, and you've had a part in the conversion of these people, then you, you're going to be concerned that these people, because of the persecution, will cave in and they'll renounce their faith. And so Revelation is written to tell these people to hang in there, he's coming soon. That's, take away he's coming soon out of there and Revelation doesn't do anything for those people. I mean, so what if he's coming 2,000 years from now? Here you are being persecuted right now. And, 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 and it's a danger for you to even assemble and worship in the name of Christ. And people are doing all kinds of negative things to you. And the book offers you no relief whatsoever. Well, there's no sense in him writing. He has written it to give hope to these people, to tell them to hang in there. And the message is, it's like, again, you're, you're in the Alamo. You've got a few people you're outnumbered, hang in there, we're coming with a big crew to help you out. Uh, or like MacArthur, when he leaves the Philippines, I shall return, I'm coming back with more men next time. And the people that were captive and stayed there lived with that hope, uh, that uh, those were words of hope to them, MacArthur's coming back. Well, in the same way, when he writes here, and the same thing when Peter writes, and when the Hebrew writer writes, and when James writes, and when Paul mentions it, These statements of, I'm coming soon, the nearest end at hand, these were words of hope to a very persecuted people uh, that that the judgment situation was going to come. And Revelation starts right at the end of where we left off uh, in Jude. Uh, And we're dealing with a time when Christianity is undergoing all kinds of persecution. The number one force is the Jews. And the Jews have used Rome... Against the Christians and so for the first time now as we get to Revelation the Christians are getting it from both places The Jews and the Romans up to 64. They only got it from the Jews and then Nero began the persecution in 64 the city of Rome burned. Rome was divided up into 14 districts Of those 14 districts 10 of them were either destroyed or severely damaged as a result of the fire including the palace and all where the king lived Nero came back starting a building program, which meant heavy taxes for the people to redo this thing. But he needed a scapegoat. People were thinking that Nero uh, has done this uh, because he wants to build it and leave a lasting memory for himself, you know. So his scapegoat was the Christians. Uh, The Christians were hated in the Roman society. Everything the Romans did, the Christians looked down on. Uh, they, They said, you people are worshiping a bunch of idols. There's only one true God. Uh, the way you're living is debauchery, and and all of all of this kind of thing, and so, if you go back and read the statements of Roman uh, writers, they they were very negative about the Christians. They referred to them as atheists. They referred to them as haters of men, and so, that at that point, they just simply made a good scapegoat, and so he could grab them, and then began the first imperial persecution of Christians, and it became so severe that the histor- their own Roman historians, record how they. Put Christians in animal skins and turned animals loose on them. Uh, Nero lit his gardens. Uh, they were crucified. Uh, even men like Tacitus, the great Roman historian, uh, referred to the cruelty of Nero and all that was taking place. And so as we get Revelation, all of this has gone on and the Jews are still a persecuting force. All right, now let's start in, in chapter 1 in a synopsis thing and look at at it from from this standpoint, that we've got a letter written to people uh, that are being severely persecuted, and it's designed to offer them hope and tell them it's an imminent thing that is coming soon. Okay, the first chapter, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. Okay. I don't know how, in in the Amplified Version, it says, in brackets, speedily take place, emphasizing the meaning of the Greek word. It's it's, uh, something that's speedily going to happen. In the third verse, take to heart what is written because the time is near. So he he introduces his book by telling you that the thing is going to soon take place and the time is near. Now, something I want to point out right here, those, and this is now, that the majority of scholars are now putting all of this in the first century and with the events dealing with the persecution and the suffering of christians in that time some of these people that do this and have the date 96 take this uh information and this judgment situation apply it to the roman empire and so instead of nero it's domitian and then uh and then we have the judgment on rome but this book here, this is one, I could use other, called The History of Mankind, and over here dealing with the, the fall of Rome, here's a statement that it makes. The textbooks of ancient history give the date 476 as the year in which Rome fell, because in that year the last emperor was driven off his throne. But Rome, which was not built in a day, took a long time to fall. The process of falling Rome was so slow and so gradual, that most Romans did not realize how their old world was coming to an end. But the majority of the people during the first four centuries of our era ate and drank, hated and loved, went to the theater, uh, starved in the slums, utterly ignorant of the fact that their empire had outlived its usefulness and was doomed to perish. Uh, How could they realize the threatened danger? He goes on to then give all the reasons for the fall of Rome. The point is, There never was a judgment day as such for Rome, and and Rome failed. Uh, Rome gradually decayed inwardly over a period of hundreds of years. So let's put, for the sake of argument, Revelation in 96 AD, and say the persecuting force is Domitian, and he's talking about this judgment on the Roman Empire. Well, then let's go back and look at it historically. By the time we reached Domitian, Christianity is actually starting to win the day in Rome. And by the time we hit 200 A.D., Christianity has all but won the day in Rome. And then over a period of from 200 to about uh, 476, we just simply see a gradual decadence of Rome and the Christians gradually growing all of that time. But before we even get to the fall of Rome and its completeness, The Church itself has suffered all kinds of corruption and is on its way into Roman Catholicism, and there is tremendous corruption within the Christian Church by the time we get. In other words, when we get to the downfall of Rome in 476, we no longer have persecuted Christians. Uh, In the 300s, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire under Constantine. There was no persecution. In fact, from the, the last persecuting force was in 303 under Diocletian. And then after that, there was simply no persecuting force. And so by the time we get to the fall of Rome in 476, Christianity for over 100 years has been the official religion of the Roman Empire and has not been a persecuted people at all. And then we have an empire that just gradually falls out. All right, contrast that with Revelation written to people that are being severely persecuted. By a man who's been banished for the, to the Isle of Patmos for his testimony. And he's talking about them, about a judgment that will soon take place. And he's going to talk about a city that will be judged in a, short, in a very short period of time. All right, now, the statements he used, like in verse 7. Look, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him. those who pierced him uh, in Isaiah when in speaking of god's judgment he was spoken of as coming on the clouds isaiah 19:1. Uh, jesus in talking about the destruction of jerusalem in matthew 24 and verse 30 said he'll be coming on the clouds and yet he said all this will happen in that generation uh, this was a figurative language that was used regularly by the jews in speaking of the quick way that god came in judgment uh, they used it in contrast to the Idolatrous people who carried their idol gods on the back of animals and while their God rode the clouds and he speedily came in judgment I'm saying that when he wrote this uh, There was no But no Jew that received this that believed that Jesus was ever going to literally ride a cloud and people were going to literally with their fleshly eyes, see him they all understood that it is a reference that's yeah uh, of God's coming in judgment okay now In the uh, second chapter, in verse uh, 9 and 10, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you're rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews, but are not. But are the synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. Okay? Commentators all through the centuries have recognized that this, again, is another indicator that this was written when the Jews were a persecuting force against the Christians there were the synagogues of people that said they were Jews but really they were not Jews they were synagogue of Satan the Satan is just simply a word that means adversary these people are claiming to be Jews the true Jews but really they're they're like Jesus said to Peter get thou behind me Satan they are the adversaries of God but these people are about to suffer as a result of these people that claim to be Jews but are not Jews all right in the third chapter in verses um, 9 and 10 I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews. There was no Gentile going to claim to be a Jew. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Okay? I will come on down. Verse 10, middle of the verse, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world. I am coming soon, verse 11. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I'll make a pillar in the temple of my God. Then he speaks of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem that's coming down in heaven. You, you can only have a new Jerusalem in contrast to an old Jerusalem. He was coming soon in judgment, an old Jerusalem. New Jerusalem, the church, was a spiritual city that came from heaven. And so, there were these people that claimed to be Jews, but really they were of the synagogue of Satan. He says, you hang in there, you're going to suffer, but I'm going to make them know, I will make them come to fall down at your feet. In other words, after this judgment situation, these people that claimed to be the people of God and were not, would have to recognize that these were the people of God. Remember, Peter said, the time, the end of all things is at hand, First Peter 4.7 and then 4.17, it's now time for judgment to begin at the house of God. That the house of God had two groups of people claiming to be the true servants of God, judgment would begin, God would defeat fleshly Israel, spiritual Israel, the church, the New Jerusalem, would come out of fleshly Israel, totally victorious and recognized as the people of God. All right, now, come on down after he ta- makes his address, uh to all the churches, there are statements in all of them that are similar to him that overcomes be thou faithful up to and including death. in other words, these people are undergoing something he wants them to be faithful even till they go to their death, and he lets them know that they will that they, that the end result is that they will overcome. okay now he is, sees a vision, and in verse one. Uh, chapter four he said i will show you latter part of the verse what must take place after this okay so heaven has been opened john is looking into vision and god is going to show him what he's going to see okay he sees uh 24 thrones uh 24 elders uh he sees four living creatures lion ox man and eagle uh and he describes all this uh this is just what John saw. He doesn't understand it himself at this point. He just simply has seen this. Uh, we can speculate, uh, you know, about the uh, 24 elders or 24 thrones. Are you talking about the, some commentators think the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, whatever. Uh, I don't sense, until it actually interprets it, the best we can say is, well, that's a, that's a possibility. Suffice to say, that's just what John saw. Uh, but we, one thing we're going to see as we go through here. Sometimes he will interpret the figurative language, but even if you didn't have the interpretation there, there's something that stands out and all commentators have recognized all through the centuries. This is figurative language talking about a coming in judgment on a force that was persecuting Christians. Even the futurists that say that we're in the last days now, they recognize, and and no matter how revelation's been used through the centuries, they've always recognized that it is written to people that are being persecuted. And it was promising that righteousness will win out in the long run, that God will come in judgment, God will set up his kingdom, okay? The, those that believe uh, this futurist type thing do not believe that God's kingdom is in existence now. They believe that we are in the church age, uh, that it's a temporary thing, uh, that Christ will come back and will set up his kingdom. I believe the kingdom is in existence right now, that the word kingdom and church are used simultaneously they speak of the same, just different ways of speaking of the, the same people. Okay, the judgment situation is set up. He, then he looks into heaven and he sees a scroll. And the scroll contains some information that is going to unlock things and help John understand this. But he begins to weep. i mean, the fifth chapter, fourth verse. I wept because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Well, then it says, do not weep. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, opens the scroll. And we begin to, to see the things unfold. And we find a, uh, four living creatures. And he looked, and there before me was a white horse. And its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown. And he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal. Okay, so here at least we know there's a war situation. That there, there is a conqueror coming from the Lord, been on conquest. Then another horse came, and its rider was given power to take peace from the earth, and make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. So he said that there's gonna be a situation where men actually begin to slay one another. Uh, It is interesting here that, uh, that as Rome began to encompass Jerusalem, there was a tremendous debate Inside, Josephus records the debating among the Jews in Jerusalem as to whether or not to fight Rome. See, a lot of the, even the fleshly Jews who were not Christians, thought they were biting off more than they could chew when they went against Rome. And then you had the zealot who believed fervently that they should stand up and fight Rome and that they couldn't lose because God was on their side and that they were doing the will of God. Well, the end result was that, that as this battle began to unfold, the war between Israel and Rome, there were a lot of Jews that were killed by the Jewish zealots who were actually putting to death the fleshly Jews who did not want to go to war against Rome and who were trying to, to persuade the people that this is a foolish thing, to go to war against Rome. Okay, a, a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales. And again, uh, you have a, a, with the scales, the, the symbolic of some type of judgment situation. So whether it, whatever is being said there as these horses go out, there is a conqueror coming, bad things are going to happen, there's a, a judgment situation that's building up. Then it says in verse 8, a pale horse, and its rider was named Death and Hades. And they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword and famine and plague. And then he opened the fifth seal, and I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. And the testimony they had maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Okay, they were each of them were given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Okay. The horses all represent some type of judgment situation. The Lord was coming as a conqueror. Uh, there was going to be killings, there was going to be a judgment. And as this judgment situation is, is pictured, is coming about, John also is made aware that some of his fellow believers who have been killed are anxious about this. And they're saying, when are you going to avenge our death? And he said, well, it's pretty close, but not quite yet. That more of you are going to die. And so we can see that he's telling them that more, more believers are going to die before this is culminated. But that you are going to be avenged. But the message is simple. And that is that God's people have been persecuted. Many have already gone to their death. Some more are going to go to their death. But the Lord is coming in judgment. And that's the message that John is getting across to these people. Hang in there. The Lord is coming in judgment. Now, the language sounds so much strange to us. We say, John, why do you write this way? We, in fact, we make this mistake with a lot of the writing of the Bible. That... John is writing this 2,000 years ago. Apocalyptic writing was very common to the people of that day. And the way that he says some of the things that he did was for a particular reason. That, uh, for example, the, the first instances of, 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 of Apocalyptic literature of this type that we read of goes back uh, before Jesus and in the intertestament period. Now there's some of it over in Ezekiel and some in Daniel. But we have a lot of it in this intertestamental period and what happens is the, the people of God are being persecuted and they, have been, they are a conquered people. Well, obviously, if you come out and call an ace an ace and a spade a spade, you could set yourself up. Uh, by, in other words, you don't just come out and say, I think the king is a bum or whatever you are. I think we're going to whip him or destroy him or whatever. And so they developed this type of language where they could communicate and, and talk about how bad their oppressors were. And how god was going to overthrow them without coming out and using any specific names okay now in verse 12 he said he opened the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun turned black and the moon turned blood red and the stars fell to earth and the sky receded like a scroll well in Matthew 24, 29, and 30, when Jesus talked about the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of the Jewish nation, he used exactly the same type of language. Uh, When Isaiah talked about Edom in Isaiah 34, he used this exact language. And when Isaiah talked about Babylon in Isaiah 13, he used this type of language. And so, this type of language right here was a type of language that was used by the writers and there was nobody that read this that looked for the sun for these things to literally happen or the stars to fall with this earth or anything like that none of them thought that they all understood that as poetic metaphors that had been used in a consistent way speaking of judgment situations
1: um i just want to make a comment um this is like chapter five it talks about um, the root of david and the lamb of god and that kind of stuff um, i automatically recognize that as jesus because I've seen it so much throughout the New Testament and Old Testament. Right. Uh, and these other things are something maybe that people avoid reading, like the sun will, you know, be darkened and then the stars will fall from heaven. But I automatically recognize, see the line of the tribe of Judah, the root right. of David. I automatically recognize that as Jesus, but it never does say that it's Jesus Christ.
0: That's good to point out, Mark. That in other words, you recognize it because in your past framework you've heard all of that applied to Christ. Mm-hmm. And and again, what if somebody who has not read any of the Bible except Revelation, were to read that, it wouldn't make sense to them. The lion of the tribe of Judah, who is that? The lamb of God that takes away sins, who is that? Uh, You know, they wouldn't relate to any of that. All right, think of some of our services. And we do this at church sometimes and looking at our songs. We sing songs like unto Canaan Lamb." Have you ever thought what that means to somebody that is not a student of the, who's walking in, as, who's not read or been taught the Bible and we're, and we're singing the song about marching on the Canaan land? It, it, it has meaning to us because we know about the literal. Before you can have the, the something to be symbolic of a spiritual thing, it has to first have a literal background. And so we know about that we compare our going to heaven with their going into the land of Canaan. So we understand it. Crossing with the songs about death that come to Jordan and cross over the Jordan River. Now, figurative, but yet we understand it. Uh, We have literally a multitude of songs where stanza after stanza is figurative, and yet we perfectly relate relate to it with no problem. Like, one we've got, uh, uh, we're looking to the, it speaks of the pearly gates and the streets of Gull, and that it names all the various jewels and things like that, and we understand exactly what we say when we're singing that. Well, in the same vein, The initial readers of Revelation. Obviously, John's not writing this information trying to hide what he wants to say. And and when God is giving John this vision, the object is to enlighten John. How are you enlightening him if you're giving him a lot of information he can't understand? Obviously, God, through Christ, believes he's enlightening John. And that as John writes this material... He intends it as a revelation to, to, to reveal, to open up, to give light to. So I'm saying that those people, I believe, were as comfortable with these symbols because of their apocalyptic background and their background in the Old Testament and all as you and I would be with, with all kinds of idioms like he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth or he blew his top or whatever it might be that, that we use, that they were very comfortable. And when Jesus spoke of the destruction of Jerusalem and use the thing about the stars, the moon, the sun, etc. He knew that in their whole background that they had used that type of terminology in speaking of judgment. And so he was very comfortable. That's why, in fact, the reason that Isaiah doesn't even bother When you read Isaiah, he talks about Babylon. He doesn't say, now listen, don't get me wrong, I'm not talking about the, the stars literally falling. Obviously, he's writing to people who understand that language. And Isaiah didn't invent that language. In fact, there wasn't a single prophet that invented any of his language. The language they used was in the vernacular and the language patterns of the people of that day. And they wrote to communicate, not to hide something from. But you and I sit here several thousand years later with different language patterns, different idioms, uh, different poetic metaphors, different customs. And therefore, we wondered why in the world even write something like this when what we have to do is, is in order to put ourselves in the position of the initial readers is to go back and read the kind of material that they had access to. Okay, in verse 17 of chapter 6, the great day of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Okay, God's wrath is coming to who? The persecuting force of the Christians. All right, what identification do we have of them so far? They are people who say they're Jews. But they're not. They're of the synagogue of Satan, and it's a judgment situation that is coming soon. Okay, when he speaks, of the great day of the wrath has come. Who can stand? Hold your place right there, and flip over to First Thessalonians. As we said, this had been building all all through the New Testament. The same type of language written to the people who have been severely persecuted promising them a judgment of relief uh, look at verse 10 to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath so the coming of jesus going to rescue us from the wrath of god okay come to the second chapter beginning with verse 14. for you brothers became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus, you suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come on them for the most. So, in Thessalonians, we noted that the second coming of Christ, well, if we don't want to go to just chapter 4 and grab 4 or 5 verses totally out of the context, Thessalonians is written to people that are being severely persecuted for their faith. And the number one persecuting force are the Jews. And they are reminded that they have killed Jesus, they have killed the prophets of God, they are hostile, and they're trying to keep the apostles from even preaching to the Gentiles, and the wrath of God was going to come on them. And so the wrath that was going to come was this judgment on these people that were fighting Christianity. Over here, we have the same thing. We have people that, that are pursuing Christians, persecuting them, doing everything they can to stamp out Christianity. The great day of their wrath has come. Who will stand? they claim they're Jews, but really they're they're not true Jews. They're of the synagogue of Satan. Okay, now in chapter 7, as he sets up his judgment situation, there are some people he says not to harm. In verse 3, do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Okay, hold your place there and flip over to Ezekiel 9 to show the same language used before the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 586. Okay, now, you're looking at Revelation 7 in verse 3 and 4. Uh, turn to Ezekiel. You've got that Ezekiel 9, 4 through 6. Barbara, would you read that verses uh, 4 through 6?
2: and said to him, Go throughout the city of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve, and lay my over all the detestable things that are done in it. As I listened, he said to the others, Follow him through the city, and kill without showing pity or compassion. Slaughter old men, young men, and maidens, women and children, but do not touch anyone who has the mark.
0: Okay. When Ezekiel writes... Ezekiel was carried into captivity about 597 by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, Daniel was carried off about 605. In Ezekiel's own book, he tells you that the Spirit of God came to him after he had been in captivity five years. That's 592. Ezekiel prophesied from 592 to about 586. In 586, Nebuchadnezzar was going to make his third trip back to Babylon, but this time he was going to destroy it. He was going to destroy the city, Destroy the temple, okay? Uh, right, the city of Jerusalem. All right, now, the way God has it, he has uh, Jeremiah as the prophet preaching in and around Jerusalem. He has Daniel in the palace of Nebuchadnezzar. And now Ezekiel is out among the captives. And Ezekiel is, is telling them that they're there because of their sins. They're going to be there for 70 years. God is punishing them for the sins. And Ezekiel is also telling them that God is gonna use the Babylonians to destroy the city and the temple. Well, then the the question to these people is, well, there are still some people back there that are faithful and believe in God, just like Ezekiel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When Nebuchadnezzar goes in to destroy the city, what is gonna happen to the people like Jeremiah back there? that are true followers of God. Well, then he uses the same language that they're to put a mark on their foreheads. In other words, all it wasn't going to be a literal, physical mark, but he just simply let them know that providentially, God has marked out his people, and he's going to spare them. In fact, it's interesting, we find out what happens to Jeremiah when Nebuchadnezzar, with his army, came in and destroyed the city and wiped out the temple. They said, they said to Jeremiah, where do you want to go? You want to stay in the city? You want to come to Babylon? You want to go to Egypt? You can do anything you want to do. Uh, no, no penalty to him what, whatsoever. And so in the same vein here, when you read this language about a seal on the foreheads, we're not talking about a literal seal. It's the exact same language that's used concerning the destruction of Jerusalem by Ezekiel and letting these people know what is going to happen to God's people. In the same vein here, a common question these people will have, well, when Rome comes in to wipe out Jerusalem... And they defeat the jewish nation you see at this time a big percentage of the church is jews and 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 most of the persecution is is jewish christians being persecuted by their fellow jews and so a common question in their mind is what's going to happen to the people of god i mean you you've you've pictured this awful judgment uh, john and you've seen these horses and death and hades and, and all these people being killed what's going to happen to the people of god And so John has been let know providentially, God has marked his people, and he's going to take care of his people. Uh, Every historical source that you'll read that will go back to this gives record of the fact that the Christians left. They escaped Judea. Most of them went to Pella and other surrounding areas, and even uh, uh, Titus himself. Uh, marvel at the fact that the Christians got up and got out of the city rather than stay there and be killed. Okay, he names, uh, he lists each of the 12 tribes there, okay? And again, Jewish names, Jewish tribes, and he's marking off people that were going to be providentially cared for from God whenever this great judgment came on this place. Okay, now he continues on, in the starting with the ninth verse, He looks to a salvation that belongs to God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Uh, There is praise to God. Uh, These people that are going to be delivered, verse 14, these are they that have come out of a great tribulation. Okay? In Matthew 24, 21 and 22, when Jesus is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, he speaks of a great tribulation that would be the worst thing that they had ever undergone. Well... At this time, it is worse for Christianity than it has been since its inception. That both the Romans and the Jews are persecuting Christians. And so this judgment is going to come and the persecuting force and then delivered out of that great tribulation will be the people of God. Okay, now, into the 8th uh, the and ninth chapters, uh, he simply statements there from uh, uh, angels... Uh, judgment situations, uh, people being killed, he'll make statements like a third of the earth and a third of this and a third of that. Uh, basically, uh, it's happening in parts. In other words, the judgment is coming and there's going to be so many killed and then so many killed and then so many killed. Uh, whenever an army defeated a city, and there's no better description of this than the than, uh, destruction of Jerusalem than Josephus, They would besiege the city. They didn't just run up uh, like we picture them doing and attack the city. They would besiege the city. And they would cut off all water and all food and supplies. And so what happened right away is that food and water became scarce. And so in Revelation, you'll read of somebody going through and selling barley and selling wheat. And the amount of money is a, a full day's wage according to their reckoning. In other words, he's saying that Food is going to be very scarce and very costly. So before people were defeated, the first thing that happened is that food and water became very scarce. Okay, the second thing that happened as a result of food and water becoming very scarce, people do not get enough nutrition. And when you do not get enough nutrition, you become subject to various diseases and all that your body's been fighting off. So then the next thing that happened is people began to have various diseases and plagues, and a lot of people began to, to get sick and to die that way. Right. then the next thing that happens is when you've got people dying and they're hungry and they don't, and they begin to have doubt about their situation, uh, they sometimes begin to turn on themselves. And so you have a lot of fighting and a lot of argument. And so what Josephus records is when it got so bad that a lot of the Jews wanted to go ahead and surrender, but the zealots still wanted to hang in there. So the zealots went about killing and shutting up the Jews that wanted to surrender. It even reached the point, Josephus said, that they, as people died, that those that were alive would eat their dead bodies. Okay, so all through this area, he begins to describe a situation of of, uh, this judgment that's coming, and more and more are these persecutors being put to death and going to their downfall. We're in the 11th chapter. Let's see, Steve, uh, read that on down through verse 8. Just... I was
2: given a reed like a measuring rod and was told. Go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the worshippers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from them, from their mouths, and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying, and they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. The will lie in the street of that great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also the
0: Lord was crucified. Okay, now look at that. We're not, without even getting into all the details or anything like that, this is something that, that commentators recognized all through the centuries, that for those that put the 96th date on there was a problem to them. Because obviously he writes as if the temple and the city are still standing. I mean, he says, go and measure the temple and the altar. Count the worshipers there. Exclude the outer court. Well, can you imagine John receiving this in 96 and Jerusalem has already been destroyed? I mean, he, writing to a, what, what would it prove to even write something like this? You know, the Jerusalem's already been destroyed. The temple's been destroyed. The altar's been destroyed. There are no worshipers there. But he, he goes and measures the temple and the altar and the worshipers. And then it says, they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Well, it's a historical fact that the war between Israel and Rome lasted for 42 months. Started in 66, finished in, in 70. And then uh, when he speaks of the various things that, was, that would happen, he said in verse 8, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord is crucified. Well, he tells you right here, that he's referring to the city in a figurative way. And figuratively, he calls it Sodom and Egypt. Well, Sodom God passed judgment on. Edom God passed judgment on. Later on, we're going to Egypt. get to Babylon. Pardon? Egypt. Right. That uh, You know, he passed judgment on Egypt when they came, when the Israelites came out. He passed judgment on Sodom. And then later on, we're going to get to Babylon. Well, he passed judgment on Babylon also as a wicked place. But where was the Lord crucified? Jerusalem and, and so that's uh, in fact this is the place that, uh, that after Adam Clark you know gave the various arguments of his day and all that he made it clear that he just simply could not get anything out of this except that John was writing this when Jerusalem was standing, and that had reference to the to the Roman army and the destruction of Jerusalem you know that lasted for him. that he said that from his standpoint that that's all that he could get out of the passage Okay, in verse 13, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. Okay, after the collapse of the city now, we have the collapse of the city. Then we have, in verse 15, the seventh angel angel sounded, and then the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And come on down to verse 17, the middle of the verse. You have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, your wrath has come. Verse 19, then God's temple in heaven was opened and within the temple was seen the ark of the covenant and there came flashes of lightning and ramblings and peals of thunder and earthquake and a great hailstorm. Well, remember when the old covenant was given? All of those things that accompanied it at Mount Sinai? Well, then in this vision, He has the destruction of this city. And it's the city where the Lord was crucified. But then after the destruction of that city, then it says the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord in Christ. And he will reign forever and ever. And it speaks of his great wrath and all that has been accomplished. And then God's temple is now in heaven. It's no longer on earth. It's in heaven. And in heaven he sees the Ark of the Covenant. And and then the same things that happened in a physical way with the Old Covenant uh, he sees happening with this spiritual temple that's in heaven. And so we've already seen earlier the contrasting of, of a new Jerusalem in contrast with a city that was destroyed or God passed judgment on. Okay, the 12th chapter. And again, all we're doing is giving a synopsis of the just a general theme of the whole book. Uh, A great wondrous sign appeared in the heaven. A woman clothed the sun and moon and stars under her feet. Again, this is what John sees in the vision. 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant, cried out in great pain, about to give birth. Uh, Then another sign appeared in heaven. The red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns and seven crowns. His tail swept down a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that he might devour her child the moment he was born. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule the nations with an iron scepter. And her child was snatched up to God, to his throne. The woman fled into the desert, to a place prepared for her by God, where she might take, be taken care of for, notice, 1260 days. All through here, the times are given 1260 days. 42 months. Time times and half a time. all of them add up to three and a half years. Time, times, half a time. Uh, 42 times 30 is 1260. The Jewish month was 30 days. And so, so sometimes it' say like 42 months, sometimes 1260 days, sometimes time times uh, and half a time. But again, this is what John sees. There's no question that he's speaking of, of Christ there. That's, uh, that's been given birth. The, dra- the woman about to give birth might devour her child. She gave birth to a son, a male child who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter. Again, go back and read Psalms 2. On the Messiah to come that would rule all, all the nations. So what do you have? From the people of God, out of spiritual Israel, comes the Messiah as a root out of dry ground. Okay, what happens? The persecuting forces want to destroy him. And they want to destroy his people. But God has provided a way and he's providentially taking care of his people. Jesus has been raised. Uh, he's king of kings. He's lord of lords. And in the same way that he raised the Lord, uh, God is going to providentially take care of his, of his people. Steve? No. Okay. Okay. Uh, look at verse 13. The dragon saw that he had been hurled to the earth and he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The woman was given to the two wings of a great eagle so that she might uh, fly to the place prepared for her in the desert. Where she would be taken care of, notice, time, times, and half a time. So he says, 1260 days, now to the same people in the same situation, it's time, times, and half a time. And what do we again have? We have the people of God who have given birth to the Messiah being pursued by a persecuting force. Again, representing a persecuting force with a dragon or a vicious animal is very common to the Scriptures. Remember with, uh, uh, when we go back to Daniel, and we find the way that, uh, like uh, the Grecian Empire was represented with a leopard, the Medo-Persian was represented with a bear, uh, remember the Babylonian Empire represented as a lion, uh, then remember the, before that the image representing all four. And remember the fourth empire was an evil beast that he couldn't even describe in an accurate way. So representing uh, evil empires in terms of some wild or vicious animal was characteristic. How was the devil represented? As a serpent. And, and not, a, not a literal serpent, but re- represented that way. In verse 17. The dragon was enraged at the woman, went off to make war against the rest of her offspring, those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the the dragon has been unsuccessful with Jesus, but now he's going after the people of Jesus. And and he's trying to make war against them and trying to destroy them and stamp them out. All right, then he says, I saw a beast coming out of the sea. He had 10 horns and seven heads. And the beast I saw resembled a leopard, but he had feet like a bear, and a mouth like a lion, and a dragon. And the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. One of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. The whole world was astounded and followed the beast. Men worshipped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast. And they also worship the beast and ask, Who is like the beast? Who can make war against him? The beast was given a month to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise his authority for 42 months. Here we go. We've had 1266, 1260 days. We've had time, times and half. Now we have 42 months. Same, same period of time expressed in three different ways. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name in his dwelling place. And those who live, on the, who live in heaven, He was given power to make war against the saints and to conquer them, and he was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation, and all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the book of life, belonging to the Lamb of God. And so, here is the dragon and the beast uh, making war against the people of God, and there are those that are literally falling down in homage to him, except for those who are the true people of God. Alright, and when he, uh, so far as the powers are concerned, remember that Judaism derived its power from Rome. In other words, their high positions and all of this, they had from Rome. And, and it was Rome, for example, that crucified Jesus because of the Jews. They didn't even want to do it. It was Rome that had Paul in prison because of the Jews. In fact, in, in some sense, Rome actually protected Christianity, but yet in another sense, Rome actually extended power to the Jews. So
2: the, the, Jew, the Judaism represent, was represented by the dragon and the Romans were represented by the, this uh, beast? Yeah,
0: I think and we're going to see, the, we're going to find uh, another beast also involved in here. But yeah, we have a, we have the people of God giving birth to the male child, the Messiah and a persecuting force there and then we also find another persecuting force, and we find one force that derives its power from the second force. And they're both against the people of God. But as we get through here, we're going to see that one of them turns on the other. That the the, the beast is actually going to turn on this other persecuting force of the, of the Christians. What's
2: this? Uh, one, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed.
0: Well... I don't know whether he has, there's several possibilities there. I mean, you, all, I, all, all we can do is read the, the history and just simply make a guess, you know, at that particular thing. Whether he has reference to the fact that, uh, that uh, Rome, uh, you know, had a, had a period of time there after, right after Nero, where there was instability, they went through about three emperors in two years period of time, and Vespasian stabilized it, but also there were some problems with, with the Jews at that period of time. Okay, verse 11, I saw another beast coming up out of the earth, and he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon, and he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, so this beast is acting on behalf of the first beast, and he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose fatal wound had been healed, okay? He performed great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven and the earth in full view of men. Okay, he deceives the inhabitants of the earth. Uh, he, Verse 16, he forced everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on the right hand, and on the forehand, so that no one could buy or sell unless he had the mark in which the name of the beast and the number of his name. This calls for wisdom. If anyone has insight, let him calculate the number of the beast For it is a man's number, his number is 666. Again without being specific, using numbers in such a way as to spell out a name in a coded way was done by the Jews of this day. And there's been all kinds of efforts on that particular thing and you can do all kinds of things with it. To come up with Nero, uh, if you put it before 70 A.D., then obviously they can show you where you can take the consonants of of the Hebrew alphabet and assign them values equaling 666 and come up with Nero. But you can also take letters and make other names also. So I'm saying that this name, this number, doesn't mean anything to us today until you actually put it in a certain date. Because once you put it in that date, you've got 666. And you can divide that 666 in various ways. But it was a common practice among the Jews in Apocalyptic literature to use numbers. And the number itself, for example, this might be divided up into 250 and 6 and some other. And then each of these numbers would be assigned a a consonant uh, in the Hebrew language. I say consonant the Hebrew language, the true Hebrew has no vowels. And so it would be assigned a particular consonant and would spell out a name. And the only people that would really be in tune to that would be the people of that particular day. So you and I are not there, and so we we can stand back some years later and look, and, and whatever name we're looking for, we can divide it up and come up with a name. So I'm saying that what name you come up with is, uh, this really to me is no help at all, so far as whatever anybody does with it, because what name you come up with is gonna depend on whether you put the book in 96, or whether you put it before 70 AD. If you put it before 70, A.D., then you're going to come up with, with Nero. Okay. Uh, we've had this city now in that the, for 11 chapters we built up to the fall of a city and it fell. And it was a city referred to as Sodom and Egypt, but it was a city where the Lord was crucified. Now we come to another series of visions as we're going through and we have this beast, and we have the people of God that have been persecuted. We have a time frame of 42 months, or 1,260 days, or time, times, and half a time. And now we have Babylon that falls. And so in the 14th chapter, we began to deal with Babylon. Babylon, Egypt, Sodom, all have one thing in common. They are nations of the past that God judged because of their, un- their ungodliness. Verse 8, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great who made all the nations to drink of her maddening wine and her adulteries. Okay, he speaks of the falling of Babylon uh, in the 15th chapter, verse 1. God's wrath is completed, and I saw what looked like a sea of glass mixed with fire standing beside the sea, and those who had been victorious over the beast. And so God's wrath is completed, there are those that have been victorious over the beast. Uh In the 16th chapter, he speaks of the fact that in verse 4, 5, and 6, God is just in his judgments. Uh, You're the Holy One uh, because you have so judged. For, notice now these people that have been judged in verse 6 of chapter 15, they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. Remember what we read over in (coughs) 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, 14-16, speaking of the Jews who had persecuted them and killed the Lord, killed the prophets, and that God's wrath is going to come on them. Well, looking at this, and the judgment is on them because of the, the righteous people that they had killed. They've shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given them the blood to drink as they deserve. Hold your place there and turn over to Matthew 23. Matthew 23 and verse 33. Okay, Jack, would you read that 33 on down through uh,
3: 39? 23, 33, 3. 39. <coughs> you snakes, you brutal vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue them from town to town. And so upon you will come all the right, righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Baruch, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You who kill the prophets and stone these sent to you, how often I have longed to gather you, your children together as a hen gathers her cheeks on her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Then notice he promised to
0: come in the name of the Lord on Jerusalem. He describes that in the 24th chapter, but look at verse 35. Upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah. In the Jewish scriptures, as they compile them, the first righteous person to die was Abel, the last was Zechariah. Uh, okay, he promises that it's going to come on that generation. Over here after this judgment situation, he says in verse 6, They have shed the blood of your saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve. And so he pictures uh, these people that were judged as people that have persecuted and shed the blood of God's people, naming the prophets specifically there. Okay, then uh, uh, speaking of that uh, judgment in verse uh, uh, 10, latter part, men gnawed their tongues in agony, cursed... uh, They cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they refused to repent of what they had done. Uh, Verse 15, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes. Now look at that statement. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. Now what does that mean to you today? I come like a thief. Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him. So that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed, the temple had guards in it to protect it. And there were Jewish guards from within the within the temple, and as any guards, there was man. It was the worst thing to go to sleep on duty. And of course, if a Roman soldier went to sleep on duty, he lost his life. Well, what the Jews did to the temple guard, if a uh, if the, when the inspector went through, if somebody was caught asleep, they stripped his clothes off and ran him out naked before all the people. And so he was totally embarrassed. And everybody knew what happened. He went to sleep when he was on duty. Now Josephus, by the way, refers to this in in one of his books, Evidence and Demands a Verdict. The point is, this is another one of those verses showing that the the indicating that the temple was still standing at the time that this is written, that these people were very familiar with that. But I'm saying when they when they read this, "Behold, I come like a thief." Blessed is he who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, that he so that he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. In their mind, they knew exactly what was being said there. The alert temple guards kept their clothes on. Those who went to sleep were stripped naked and sent out in shame before everybody before everybody else. Even the Gentiles would have known that. The uh, the readers here of the, uh, the Revelation, but I'm saying the Christians, were, even the Gentiles, were aware of the Jewish practice. In fact, I was reading another, well, in fact all the sources would agree on this, although the Jews did not have the right of capital punishment, if the Gentile went into the Jewish temple, they did have the right of capital punishment. And the Gentile was very aware of that, that Rome gave them the right to take a life of anybody that went into that temple. Remember the time they got so disturbed at Paul when they thought he'd brought a Gentile into the temple. But the, the Jewish practice, just like every the body knew that Rome, a Roman soldier, lost his prisoners and went to sleep at the expense of his own life. Uh, the whole area there recognized that these people that guarded the temple that this was the Jewish practice. They couldn't take a life. If the Jews could have taken a life, they would have taken a life there, of their own people. But they couldn't, so what they did, they stripped their clothes off of them and sent them out in shame as part, part of that the embarrassment.
1: That kind of shows Rome's power too, because Rome is the one that took away the, the death sentence from Jews, right. the Jews.
0: The Jews could only execute uh, as Rome would allowed them. them. In fact, uh, when uh, James, the brother of Jesus, was put to death in 62, uh, right after Festus was taken off the throne at that point in that area, the Jews used it as an opportunity to kill James, who was the strong leader of the church at that time. But then, uh, when word got to Rome, Rome was very disturbed. And they acted, and, their, and Annas, who was high priest, was removed from being high priest because of that act against James in, in, taking, the, in taking his life. And the... Uh, some of the Roman sources, in fact, John Drain in his book that I read from earlier on, The Introduction of the New Text, refers to that so far as the taking of life of James and the fact that Rome reacted in a very negative way to it. Uh, on the persecution, uh, uh, Jason, although that uh, all were getting it from Nero and Rome at that time, the the, Jew, the Christians that were persecuted the most were the Jewish Christians. That uh, the, their fellow Jews thought that they were heretics and that, were, uh, and that their law demanded that you know, just like a false prophet be stoned to death. And they were the ones that really, all they did to the Gentiles is that they, they did everything they could to get them not to believe it. And they would follow Paul in and do everything to try to persuade that they were wrong. But the only people...